Mike Palambi's bad life began when he was a young boy and the constant target of his father's violent temper. And I'd hear him, you know, coming up the stairs and I'd hear the belt being removed. He'd walk into the room, five, six, seven, eight years old, and the last words he'd say is, if I hear a sound, you're gonna get it worse. How many of you think you became a drug addict believing the truth? How many of you think you ended up in these chairs believing the truth? No. How many of you wanted to become a drug addict? How many of you wanted to be in prison? So, answer me this question. How did we end up becoming the very people we never wanted to become? Never in all the years I've asked that question has anyone ever raised their hand and said to me, Mike, I'm incarcerated because I was caught in the commission of pursuing truth. Now the fact is, people go to prison because they believe lies. When you don't know the truth, you can't see the lie. And, and when you can't see the lie, you have no choice but to believe lies. Lies much like the lies that took me captive as a young man. I said, you just accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I said, the devil's, the devil's going to come for you. 
It usually takes me a lot longer to start crying. <laughs> but I said, the devil's going to come after you. When you make a decision to turn and to give your life to the Lord, I said, the devil's going to come for you. You need to be strong. You need to be strong in the Lord. The next day, her husband was killed. The next day, the very next day, we talk about attacks, right? Thank you, Ed. You know, there were many, many pictures of us doing ministry. We're not like, you know, a lot of prison ministers. They come into the prison. They go into the gym. They bring in a big group of men. They say a word and they leave. But you see, we, we go, or you would have seen, we go into the deepest, darkest parts of the prison. We, go, we spend a lot of time on death row. We spend a lot of time in the shoe, the segregated housing unit. Um, we go to hospice where men are dying in prison. Their lives are over. Their lives are ending. So it's a very powerful ministry that the Lord has called us to. And Ed got to come with us uh, this summer. So I'm glad, I'm glad you got to see a little glimpse of, of what it is we do. And uh, uh, that was my wife on there and my daughter uh, with me. We travel the country. We travel the entire nation, going to prisons. And what we've been doing ever since COVID, too, is uh, we started Zooming with inmates. That's something new that came out of it. Out of, out of COVID, so take that devil, right? They tried to keep us out, but we found a new way in and we could visit with the men and women even more. And another thing we do is we we disciple men when we have them uh, set up video visits with us and through those visits, we disciple them. So we're doing we're doing a lot. We're doing a lot and our hope is to do even more. You know, everything comes down to money, right guys? So we hope to do even more, but thank you, George, for the introduction and uh, it's good to see so many men out on a on a rainy morning, it's hard enough getting them up at 5 a.m., right? But it's raining out there, you know? So thank you very much. And please take a book, read it. I'm not going to go into all the details of my testimony. I'm, you know, George asked me to just kind of stay focused on the testimony. So that's kind of what I'm going to do. And my tablet isn't working, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So anyway, if you looked at the book, it's not how does it feel now, tough guy. It's how's it feel, tough guy, right? And those words, how's it feel, tough guy, are the words that God audibly spoke to me in my prison cell when I was about to stab another inmate in his throat for trying to extort me. And what stands out to me most about the moments leading up to that confrontation is that those circumstances appeared to be hopeless. My life, it appeared, it appeared to be hopeless. But what I didn't know then that I know now is nothing could have been further from the truth. That was a lie from the pit of hell, but I couldn't see this day from that place in, in that cell. But what was true about me was spoken by King Solomon. Maybe it'll resonate with some of you. Pride comes before destruction, right? An arrogant spirit comes before the fall. All that to say that long before I ever became an inmate or a prisoner in the state of New Jersey, I was a prisoner of pride. I was an arrogant man. And I had no regard whatsoever for how my choices, my words, my behavior impacted the people in the world around me. You say, how's that happen? I mean, I was this little baby born and this innocent little boy, and he grows up to become a man who is a violent, criminal, prideful, and arrogant. And I used to say, you know, there's not one thing I can point to and tell you this is the reason I became a drug addict or this is the reason I became a, a violent criminal. It was an accumulation of things in my life. And I'd say, you know, it's like I did poorly in school. I failed academically as a kid. I was a young man with a, a very poor self-esteem. My home was volatile. 
a lot of physical abuse, a lot of emotional abuse. Didn't have a good relationship with my dad, a lot of, a lot of beatings. And so I would point to these things and say, this is the reason I became who I became. And, and there is some truth to that. But I think today I can point to one thing that would explain how I became the man I never wanted to be. Deception. Believing lies. Right? Believing something's true that isn't true. Or believing something's not true that is true. I was taken captive by the devil through lies. That's ultimately what happened. Whether that happened through my father, my mother, you know, experiences in life, all of it, all of it amounted to deception in my life. And Paul's always talking about that in the Bible, isn't he? Be careful about what you're listening to. Be careful who's teaching you. Why? He said in Colossians 2.8, he said, beware. Use a strong word, beware. Lest anyone cheat you. Through what? Through philosophies, right? Through empty deception. According to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Jesus Christ. Make sure no one cheats you. In other words, make sure no one takes you captive. Make sure no one plunders you. Make sure nobody carries you away like the spoil after a battle. Make sure you don't become enslaved to the devil through the lies of this world and the lies that men will tell you. Because that's what happened to me. You saw in the video. You don't know the truth if you can't see the lies. If you can't see the lies, you have no choice but to believe lies. It was important to Paul. He understood how important it was to believe the word of God. Not only believe it, but to do it. What I believe about the word of God, it's going to be in terms of how I live my life to honor God or not. A lot of people walking around calling themselves a Christian and they're honoring the devil with the way they talk, with the way they behave, with what they're looking at with their eyes, with what they're listening to with their ears. Paul understood this and he doesn't want any of us men to fall into that trap. And I fell into that trap even after I was a Christian. Even after I was a Christian. So lies is really a very big part of our ministry. And coming against lies, whether it's biblical lies, whether it's, you know, the lies that come from shame, guilt, unforgiveness, anger, all of those different things. We come against it and we bring the hope of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is I kind of, kind of want to jump forward to the age of 20 when things started really falling apart for me, you know. And you can read the rest in the book, but at the age of 20, I played football. I was an all-star middle linebacker up at a school in Connecticut, Division II uh, school up there. And, you know, it was always my childhood dream. Play football at the highest level, right? That was my dream. It's every kid's dream. But that dream came to an abrupt end in the summer of 1979. Me and a group of my friends got into a car after a night of drinking and drugging at a place called the Osprey in Manasquan, New Jersey. Well, have you ever heard of it? Yeah, I hear some grumbling in here. Yeah, we made it about 200 yards before I was almost killed in a head-on collision. Yeah, I can remember the doctor coming into my room uh, during my hospital stay. And, you know, he's reviewing with me my injuries, what I can do and what I can't do. And then he says, you're good on a day's rope. Man, that hit me hard. That hit me hard. He said, he could see the disappointment in my face. And he said, you know, son, you're lucky to be alive. He said, most men wouldn't have even survived the accident. And here you are, you're alive. Get your priorities in order. 
And I'm laying, I'm laying in bed thinking to myself, well, maybe, maybe from where you're standing, I'm lucky to be alive. But from where I was laying, the only thing I can remember thinking is, I wish I died in that car accident. Football was my life. I had been playing it for 12 years already at the age of 20. It was the only thing that brought positive attention to my life. It was the only thing about life I enjoyed. And what I enjoyed most about life, it, it was gone in the blink of an eye. You know, you live your life foolishly. You need to get ready to experience a lot of loss in your life. And so it wasn't long after that I met a young lady. And I began dating her. And as my relationship with her grew, my relationship with her dad grew. He was a funny guy. He was a funny guy, J.D. Somebody goes, you don't name any names in the book. I go, no, I don't name any names. J.D. is John Doe, by the way. So you know. J.D. wasn't really his name, but I call him J.D. He was funny, and he was charming. And where I had such a difficult time winning my dad's approval, winning his affection, I had no problem winning his approval. He embraced me for the guy I was. He embraced me for the man I was. And so I invested myself fully into my relationship with him. But as funny as he was, and as charming as he was, there was something about J.D. that wasn't so charming. J.D. was involved in organized crime. Show me who your friends are. And I'll tell you where you're going to be five years. You ever hear that say? Somewhere along the journey of life, man, I went from being a young boy who was a victim of abuse to becoming a grown man who became the offender of the very same exact types of behavior that brought injury into my life. And I'm going to tell you something. Looking back, no one should have been surprised. You know, at the age of 20, I was, I was impressed with all the wrong things. You know, impressionable young kid, poor self-esteem, trying to win the love and affection of my girlfriend's dad, get his validation. It made it easy to do the things I did. It made it easy to rationalize and commit crime. I mean, after all, I did win his approval. And the best part for me was I didn't need a four-year degree to commit crime. I just needed to have the nerve to do what the law said I couldn't do. At 20 years old, I had all the nerve in the world, man. I had all the nerve. Well, when you live your life like that, it doesn't take long for the bottom to fall out. And King Solomon said in Proverbs, he said, you know what? There's a way that seems right to a man. Seems right. No proof that it really is right. But it seems right. But it's end. What happens at the end? It's death. It ends really bad. And what I thought was right, what seemed reasonable to me, ended really bad in the fall of 1982. I was 22 years old. I was arrested in North New Jersey by the Organized Crime Strike Force. And by the end of that day, I was indicted on six charges totaling 60 years in prison. Yeah, that's a bad day. That's a bad day. And I can remember the prosecutor right after the arraignment, you know, the prosecutor, he came to the lawyer with a deal for me, a plea bargain. He's going to make a deal. Like Monty Hall is going to make a deal for my life. And so my lawyer communicates to me what he said. And he says, look, Mike. He's like, they got you on tape. You know, they got you. He's like, listen, he's going to drop five of the felonies if you'll just plead guilty to one first degree felon. And, well, then he's going to leave it up to the judge to sentence you up to anywhere to 20 years in prison. So I'm like, huh. 
don't sound like a bargain to me. I'm like, if I'm going to prison for 20 years, you've got to find me guilty. And so I went to trial. That's what I did. I went to trial. My trial took about 15 days, to be exact. And after that trial, a jury of my peers acquitted me on the three most serious charges I had. And they convicted me on the three lesser charges I had. And so ultimately, ultimately, I received a sentence of seven years in prison. I served three years on the inside and the rest of my time on parole on the outside. I learned a lot of lessons in prison, some of them sooner than others, you know. But one of the quickest lessons I learned, God opposes the proud. How many of you know that? God opposes the proud. You know how I learned that? I learned that over a card game. Playing cards with another inmate. I learned that. I was playing cards. Bell rang for count. I was down about 30 cigarettes. I got up. I threw it back. I had cigarettes on the bed. And he pushed it back. He goes, no, no, no. You don't owe me 30 cigarettes. I'm like, oh, I don't. He's going to say, you owe me 20. He says, you owe me 30 packs. And that's when the extortion began. Yeah. That's when the threats on my life began. Threats to pay men money I didn't owe them. And I don't know if you caught it when George was introducing me. But I went to prison for what? For extortion. I went to prison because I was a man who threatened people's lives to pay me money they didn't owe me. And it wasn't until I came face to face with these individuals in my cell that it actually occurred to me. The extortionist is being extorted. The extortionist is being extorted. I can't think of a better way to strip a man of his pride and arrogance than to bring him face to face with who he, who he really is. And that's when I heard the word of God, the audible voice of God, man, not, not something that, like he might have said it. No, it was powerful. The audible voice of God said, how's it feel, tough guy? In other words, how's it feel to be your victim? How's it feel to genuinely fear you're going to lose your life because someone's threatening you to pay a debt you don't know? How's it feel, tough guy? How do you think it felt? It didn't feel so good at all, man. It didn't. It didn't. That was the moment the scales fell from my eyes. I became ashamed. I can't even explain it. I became ashamed of everything in my life that just a second before I would have been bragging about. All the things that made me a tough guy. All the things that I thought made me a man. My Every cell of my body was consumed with shame. Indescribable, indescribable. For the first time in my life, I had a clear and an unobstructed view of who I was. You ever come to that moment where you see yourself for who you truly are? You know who I was? I was the person the jury determined I was. A drug addict, a criminal, and I knew I deserved to be exactly where I was, right there in that prison. Crossroads in my life when the Lord showed me who I was. You know, you don't live like I live, not experience a lot of consequences in your life. Anybody experience consequences in your life? I've had a lot of them. And long after the day, they, you know, shut that prison door and I went free. A lot of consequences. But if you can imagine, there has been a benefit to the experience of consequence in my life. Most people don't like them, but there's been a benefit. And I can, I can tell you what that benefit is. One word. 
The word is pain. That's the benefit of consequence. Pain is what prompted me to change my life. I mean, think about it, guys. The fear of becoming a drug addict didn't stop me from doing drugs. The fear of going to prison didn't stop me from committing crime. People know they're going to get lung cancer if they, they, they smoke cigarettes, but the fear of dying of lung cancer doesn't stop them. Men know they're going, to get, they're going to get caught if they cheat on their wife, but spouses cheat on their spouses all the time. That's crazy. It seems like fear, the fear of getting caught, the fear of dying, the fear of going to prison, that, that would be something that would stop somebody from doing what they're doing, right? Why is it? Fear rarely stops anyone from doing what's destroying their life, but fear seems to always stop people from doing what would be best for their life. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, I think Paul gives us the answer. He's talking to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he says, look, Timothy, God has given you a spirit, not a fear, but of power and love and sound mind. So what we know is we know spirits of fear. A fear is a spirit. And we know it don't come from God. So where does it come from if it doesn't come from God? It comes from the devil. So I can stand in front of you today with a lot of confidence and say, God never intended for fear to accomplish what he intended the experience of pain to accomplish. And in my life, I believe it's by design. I believe I could bear it out in scripture. But I believe by design, pain is God's source of bringing men to that place of repentance to that place where they come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Pain. <clears throat> How many of you have felt pain? Pain is what brought me to my knees. Pain is what humbled me from that arrogant posture of pride. Pain revealed to me my weaknesses as a man, just how weak I am, really. How insufficient, how inadequate I am as a man. That's what pain did for me. Pain compelled me to admit my need for God. It was right there, right there in that place of brokenness and pain where I became done in the presence of God. And I repented and I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Amen. So I'm not the man I used to be. I don't see the world any longer through the eyes of an inmate. The eyes of a drug addict, the, guy, the eyes of some guy who's got a victim mentality. Today I see the world through the eyes of a man who's made a personal choice to turn away from sin in my life, to truly repent and turn away from it, that life of rebellion. And in exchange for that foolishness, I embrace the life of hope that comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I just really, I'm going to finish up what I'm saying. I just want to talk about a verse in Titus chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, I think it is. <clears throat> Paul says, the grace of God. Say the grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Right? That's, that's what Paul said. Teaching us to deny ungodliness. This has become like life scriptures to me. Teaching me to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lust, that I might live soberly, 
righteously and godly. That's the requirement for the Christian man. What are you saying? You don't sin, Mike? No, I, I didn't say that. What I'm saying is, I'm supposed to live soberly. How do I do that? Through biblical truth. I'm supposed to live righteously, right before God. How many people in the Bible did it? Look at all the people in the Bible. It says they were righteous and blameless before God. How could they do it? They were filled with the same temptations I've been filled with. How were they able to live righteously before God? How were they able to live blamelessly before the Lord? The Bible's calling us men to a higher calling, to live soberly, clear-minded, to live righteously, and to live godly. In this present age, in this day, and while we're living that way, it says that we should be looking. We should be looking. It's great expectation. For the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ do? It says he gave himself for you. He gave himself for me. And not just for any old reason. Not because he felt sorry for Mike Columbia. Not because he felt sorry for Ed Lamoureux or, or Werner over there. Or Steve. Of George? No. Listen, man. This is important because we're always taught down. I was an athlete. I trained to win. I didn't train to lose. Olympic athletes train for a 10. They don't train for a 9.5, a 9.8. They train for a 10. We need to be men who train for a 10 as Christians. That's what we need to do. We need to train. You don't try to be a Christian. You'll never be one. You train to be a Christian. The same way you train to be a soldier. The same way you train to be a teacher. The same way you train to be a pilot or an athlete. You train. That's what we do. And if you train long enough, guess what happens? You get really good at it. You get really good at it. I wasn't a good carpenter, trust me, the first time I picked up a hammer. But I'm a great carpenter today. Why? Because I do it every day of my life. If I can apply that to my walk with the Lord, I'm going to become a great Christian. Jesus gave himself. You need to read this, and you need to meditate on it. To redeem us, it says, from every lawless deed. Wow. Well, that's not. You're just a man, Mike. Every man falls short. Yeah. We fell short before we came to Christ. But as I'm in Christ Jesus, all things become new. And there should not be, there should not be presumptuous sin in my life. I'm not talking about unintentional sin. I'm talking about going out and doing what I know is wrong. Intentionally doing. That should not be in our life. He came to redeem us. From every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who would be zealous for his good works. In other words, to be enthusiastic for his good works. Are you enthusiastic today? Do you get up in the morning and say, Lord, what's my assignment today? What do you have for me today? Lord, I pray today, Lord, that I will represent you well. That I will be a reflection of Jesus Christ and that no matter what happens, the peace of God that lives in me will cause my light to shine despite anything that happens in my life. For I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. These aren't just words, man. This is the Bible. This is the Word of God. 
but it's Christ who lives in me. And this life I live in the flesh, I live through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who loved me and died for me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this time in your presence, Father. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of coming here uh, to speak to the New King Society, Lord. I thank you for George inviting me, Lord. I pray that, as I prayed earlier, that you would do something divine with this word that came from the Lord this morning. And Lord, I pray that these men would, would choose to go deeper, Lord. If, they, if, they're in, if they're in the water up to their ankles, Lord, I pray that they would go in the water up to their knees. And if they're in the water up to their knees, I pray they go in up to their waist. And for the men that are in here that are in up to their waist, Father, I pray they go out to where their feet won't touch the bottom, to that place in the deep where the deep cries out to deep, that place in the deep where we have to live fully dependent on Jesus Christ. Lead us. Lead us, Holy Spirit. Guide us. Show us the way, Lord. Strengthen us in our inner man. Strengthen us to become the men you called us to be and that we would be redeemed from every lawless deed, Lord, that we would be purified in the eyes of God, Father God, and that we would be men who are zealous, enthusiastic about doing the will of God. To God be the glory, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Forever and ever I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.